You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come and worship you in all of your glory and all of your splendor and all of your holiness. God, as we sing songs to you today, we recognize that you are so high above us. You, God, you are in a whole other category than we are. And for that, God, all we can do is stop and to worship and to praise you with all of our hearts. God, we thank you this morning. You've given us your Holy Spirit to stir us to the things of you, to cause us to worship, to cause us to long to see you, to cause us to be eager to hear from your word. And God, as we now open up your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would work in us, God, to continually draw us near to yourself. Convict us this morning, God, where we need convicting, Lord. Encourage us where we need encouraging. God, in all things, I pray, oh Lord, that you would cause every heart here to be engaged with you uh, there, God. And God, I pray today specifically you not allow us to miss this such important message, this important message for our souls. God, would you soften our hearts to hear? Would you open us, Lord, to this truth, which is going to be hard to hear, but so necessary? And God, ultimately, I pray that you'd make us into a holy people set apart for you and for your good work here. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you've made. We're rejoicing. We're glad in it. We're so eager, Lord, to encounter you through your word today. Speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat this morning. You can turn through your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 today is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, one of the ushers will be more than happy to get a copy of God's Word in your hands. Just slip your hand up and please follow along with us. I really want you today to hear God's Word and to see God's Word for yourself. So Acts chapter 5, I'm going to give you a minute to get there. Everyone there? Got your finger there? Got your finger there? Ready to go? All right. It was John Stott that said this. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. While they may occasionally meet, they cannot live together in harmony. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. While they may occasionally meet, they cannot possibly live together in harmony. In fact, you open up the Word of God this morning, you open up the Word of God, and and almost anywhere you see this, you see a holy God who absolutely hates sin. A God who has designed us in a way that sin has no part of our lives. And yet, I think sometimes we we know this in our heads this morning, we we sometimes wrestle this question, really, how much does God hate sin? You ever thought, well, how much does God really hate sin? Does, Does God hate sin like I hate winter? Like, I hate winter. It's not convenient. It's, it's, it's not really fun. But I, ultimately, at the end of every winter, I can look back on the winter and I can say, you know, I tolerated it and it wasn't that bad after all. There's always, you're going to find some fun things to do in winter, right? But does God hate sin like I hate winter? No. Way more than that. Does God hate sin like I hate liver? Like, you put liver in front of my face, I get this gag reflux that kicks in and I can't even help it. But ultimately, if I had to, I could swallow down a chunk of liver and it would even be some, somewhat nourishing to my body. Does God hate sin like I hate liver? No. no. Does God maybe hate sin like I hate cancer? You even hear that word, you hear that word, I hear that word, cancer. Like, like I hate cancer. Like I, if I could, I, I, I want to stay far away from that word. I wanna, if I could, I'd eradicate cancer from this earth. Does God hate sin like I hate cancer? God hates sin more than we can even comprehend, even more than all those things together. That's how much God hates sin. You ever wondered how much God hates sin? We're about to find out in Acts chapter 5. We see a picture here of what God really thinks about sin in the hearts of his people. I'm going to start reading at, the, at chapter 4, verse 32. It all goes together. We're going to skip over the, the few, last few verses of chapter 4 because we already covered this in the Uncommon Community Sermon, the, this whole idea of the generous generosity of believers. But the, this whole passage goes together. So let me start reading, and then we're just going to dive in. So after they prayed together, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness, 31. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one 
said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. So this is a pretty cool place. The believers are experiencing God. They're seeing God at work, and, and they're, they're truly a community of faith in which, in which everybody is just pooling their resources and caring for each other. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a pretty sweet community, isn't it? You think, you think that, that, that all is good in the hood with the Christian community? Like, there's, like, what could possibly go wrong? They're seeing God at work. All these amazing things are happening. They're actually living together with godly love. And then chapter 5 starts with this little word. What is it? But. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sin. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not having any clue what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold this land for so much. Obviously part of the lie, she's like, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her uh, beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Got to be honest, this is shocking, isn't it? Like, if you were to read through Acts and you've never read this before, you get to this point, you'd just be like, what in the world? And yet it's, it's clear from this passage that, that, that we come across a, a scene of which we see the holiness of God and we see how deeply God despises sin in his people and in his body of believers, the church. And I know this isn't a passage that's talked about much in church. It's usually skipped over and we get to the grace passage, right? Well, give me the grace. Give me more grace. It's God's grace that this passage is in the word of God for us today. That we might hear it and heed it. And so because I love you as brothers and sisters in Christ and because I want to be faithful to God more than please you guys, I'm just going to preach this passage as is today. Not going to pass it, not going to miss over words in this. I'm just going to preach it, praying this, praying earnestly all week this. Oh God, would you help us as your people see the seriousness of sin in our lives that we might truly repent and turn from our sin and be holy and pure and blameless before you, oh God. So I pray your hearts are open to this. I pray our hearts are hearing this. This is not my words today. This is God's words today for all of us, including your pastor. First thing I want you to write in your notes is this. Sin is utterly devastating to my relationship with God. Sin is utterly devastating to my relationship with God. It's not hard to see what's going on in this passage. Barnabas has just sold a field to contribute to the needs of the congregation. And you know what's happening? He's getting some serious press time with the people of God. They're like, oh, Barnabas, like, you know, probably like, for he's a jolly good fellow, you know. 
And everybody else is standing around going like, he set a high standard, but everyone else is standing around going like, wow, look at, look at the, the kind of the prestige you can have from, from really being a, a follower of Christ. And so whether it's because they wanted the prestige or because they're just trying to follow the example, Ananias and Sapphira, they're, they're, they're following suit. And they're like, yeah, yeah, well, he sold the field. Well, I can sell a field. And so they went and sold the field. And the problem is somewhere along the line, they told everybody, they're like, hey, I'm going to be like, we're going to be like Barnabas. We're going to sell this field and we're going to give all our money to the church too. Maybe they sent out a mass email, you know, those self-glorification emails or a little tweet like, look what I just did. Hash mark, humble. <laughs> and so Ananias gets the proceeds and something happened though. Either they changed their minds of what they're going to do or they completely deceived everybody in the process. So Ananias gets the money. The problem was when the check went in the account, he didn't take all the check out of the account. He, he left a little bit in there for himself and then took the remaining stuff and pranced over to the church offices. There's kind of this holy smugness probably going like, like look at us, like you're, this is for the church. Probably attached a few little spiritual phrases to the thing. was like, oh, it's, it's the least we could do for the body of Christ. Well, of course we would do this. We just love Jesus that much. Peter, though, Peter, though, he's not buying it because the Holy Spirit is in, in the apostles too, right? And so, so Peter realizes something's up with this. And, and look what he says to him in, in verse Three, Peter says, bold as anything, bold as a lion, Peter, right? Like the Spirit's moving in Peter. He sees that there's something wrong here. So Peter just says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Like, like what's going on, Peter, or Ananias, what's going on? He goes on to say this isn't a mandatory thing to give your money to your, all your proceeds to the church. It's not like we're a commune. You know, we still have these in, in Israel. We stayed in a couple when we were there. Kibbutzes, where, where if you join the kibbutz, your agreement is you give everything to the kibbutz, to, to the, the community, to then be pr- distributed accordingly. That's not the way the church was working in the early church. It was a voluntary thing. That's what Peter was telling them. He's like, Ananias, but like, but like this was your land in the first place, and, and, and you didn't have to give it all. Why would you even conceive this idea of a lie? Why would you try and pretend you're more spiritual than you really are? Huge contrast, right? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, just this sincere and sacrificial giving, where on the other hand, Ananias and Sapphira, they were, they were on a whole different level with this stuff. They twisted this generous act with insincerity and self-glory. And then we see here, Peter just calling him out, and can, can you imagine, like he's caught, like he's exposed, Right? And I just, can you imagine, you've been there, right? When your parents have caught you in something, you're just like, mm. that Face-to-face with your mom or dad when you're a kid and you know you're caught and you just don't know what to say. Remember that feeling? Times that by a million here. Dead silence, and I just doesn't say a thing. Peter says, like, you have to realize, Ananias, you're not even lying to me. You're not even lying to your friends. You're lying to God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how Satan so subtly sneaks sin into the camp of the believers to disrupt all that God is doing in their church? Isn't isn't it so amazing to, to think of how Satan is always, always looking for opportunities to deceive and dissuade us and to, to get our hearts even doing good things but with wrong intentions and wrong motives. This is how Satan destroys believers and destroys the church. He, he tricks us into allowing sin into our lives and thinking it's no big deal. Think about the church. The church was flying high at this point. Like, What's going to stop the church? Sin's going to stop the church. What is the sin that's being carried out here? Is it, is it the lying? Is it the greed? Is it, is, is it that obvious? I, I think it's a little deeper than those things. It's, it's not always the, the, the smoke that sets off the fire alarm sins that destroy, have the most destruction. It's sometimes the silent sins, like the carbon monoxide sins that have the most deadly effect on our hearts and on the church. And so even, even deeper than the lying and the greed, here's, here's what many commentators agree that this passage is about. It's about the hypocrisy of the people of God that God cannot deal with. He does deal with, but he cannot tolerate. Disunity, duplicity, and hypocrisy. 
Things that maybe we wouldn't see as a big deal to us, but they're a magnificent deal to God. Is everything that's going to ruin the church, is going to, anything that's going to ruin your life, it's, it's one of these three things. It's, it's disunity and duplicity and hypocrisy. This, this is really the sin of this passage that God is, is, is so adamant against. Think about this. this how does this cause disunity? Think about this. If, if this is going to be the norm in the church, here's what the church is going to become. It's going to become this, 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 this culture of like, let's one-up the other person and see how spiritual I can be compared to them. Is that going to ruin unity in the church? Absolutely. It's going to lead to this, this outward legalism of if I can just do all the things that I'm supposed to do and even trick people, then, but not even care what's on the inside. It's going to lead to this, this disunity in the church. That's why God speaks so clearly against it. He, he hates disunity in the church. Let's be honest, though, before we're too hard on Ananias and Sapphira, this comes across our hearts all the time, isn't it? To try and this idea of one-upping each other in the spiritual realm of things and trying to look, come off as, as more holy than the next person. This infiltrates your hearts weekly, week in, week out, doesn't it, that you have to fight against? You know, God hates when there's discord sown among his people by some of these mentalities. What about duplicity? Duplicity is one of those things that we also fight against. And in Ice and Sapphira, they're living this double life. They're outside, they're looking like, like everything's good, this spiritual split personality, but inside they have a whole other reality going on. Many believers today fall into the same thing, thinking that, that, that I can be two different people, that it doesn't matter if my friends at church think I'm one person, my friends at work think I'm another person, my friends at church think I'm one person, my friends at school think I'm another person. I can live this double life. God doesn't care as long as I say all the right things. Is that, that is so false. Duplicity does not fly with God. What about even the last one, Hypocrisy. This is, this is really what's happening. It's Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're playing some sort of spiritual charades game with this aura of being full, but they're really empty. I don't know why it's that way, but, but I, I find that this is, this is the one game that Christians love to play in the church. Charades, we wouldn't play it at home, but we seem to have this idea that when we come to church, we can play charades. See it all the time. I even catch myself doing some of these things all the time. Mouths full of flowery talk, but hearts full of sinful weeds. Flowery spiritual talk, but hearts full of sinful weeds. You ever catch yourself doing some of these things? Having the booming voice for public prayer, but when it comes to private prayer, your mouth goes silent. Being willing to pray for others, but really never allowing them to pray for you because you're too good for that. You're too spiritual for that. Quick to share your knowledge of the word of God with others, but really slow to apply the words of the scriptures to your own heart or your own life. Actively serving with the appearance of humility, but really, really deep down, you know you're only in it for self-glorification. You, you know you're only in it when there's pats on the back. And when there's not, you sure get all worked up inside. Maybe you're the one that promotes purity, but secretly you harbor lust, and you're talking about your spouse all the time, how much you love them, but deep down, you, you got your heart for somebody else. Maybe you're the one that has the outward generosity, but it's only when others can notice, and, and you're, you're quick to put the money in the plate or in the thing when, when people are looking, but when they're not, that's where you hold on tight. Maybe you're one of those ones that the blessings, you know, out of your mouth comes blessings at churches, but when you get home, man, do the curses fly. Or one of those people that you're nice as pie to people's face, but then when you get in the car, man, man, the trash talking behind the back starts. You get it, right? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. See any of these things in your own life? And okay with it? Because that's what everybody is, that's what everybody does, it doesn't really matter. Satan's greatest weapon in our lives and in our church is simply this, to, to these subtle little things that seem like they're not really significant, to, to allow our minds and hearts to be consumed by them. 
and he'll do whatever it takes to get us off the page of God. And, and Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 is, is so real for us as believers. We have to be aware of this. God says this to Cain. Remember when, when Abel's sacrifice was accepted by Cain and Cain was all jealous? God says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, he's saying, hey, sin is always crouching at the desire. His desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Of course, you know what happens next. Cain goes out and kills his brother, just disregarded the word of the Lord. Is there any way God's going to take down your life in the church? Satan's going to take down your life in the church is by allowing you to buy into this mindset that it's okay to live this double life, this hypocritical life, and somehow that God doesn't care about that. Let me ask you this. Are you even here today, and you're just like Ananias and Sapphira? You're playing some sort of Christian game that you don't even know the rules to? Think as long as others don't know you're okay, I want to tell you this, and we're going to learn this as the scriptures go on, as this passage goes on. God could care less about your public show. His deepest concern is for your private heart. God could care less about your public show. His deepest concern is for your private heart. God, get this, there's one game God hates. You know what it is? Charades. You know why? Because this sin always messes with the integrity and the authenticity of the community of believers, and it makes really a joke of the one that we worship. And so there's too much at stake here for God to say, love you, my child, go on. There's too much at stake in your life. There's too much at stake in the lives of the community of God for God just to turn a blind eye to, to some of these, these, this hypocrisy and this duplicity and this disunity that can spring up in the church. And so we see here that as the passage goes on, as we keep reading, that, that, that God is a God who is righteous and he must deal with my sin accordingly. God is a righteous God who must deal with my sin accordingly. Take some time to really think about what's going on in this passage and really allow God to speak into your heart. It's not a goof-around passage. It's really no laughing matter. You know how serious God is about sin? God is as serious about sin as, he's as serious as a heart attack. Why have you lied to, to God, Peter says. When Ananias heard these words, get this, he doesn't even have a chance to respond. When he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And a few verses later, we see the same thing basically happens with his wife. Except with, with Sapphira, like, there's a bit of a, an opportunity to respond here. Like, is this true? She says, no, same thing, just breathe her last. And, and what's happening here? No autopsy report, so we really don't know. Was it fear? Was it shock? There's been stories of people who've died of shock. The Archbishop of York, way back when, fell dead with fright when King Edward I of England just gave him an angry look. He was so scared of the, the power and the authority of the king, he just dropped over dead. Is that, is that what happened? We also we don't know, but you know what we do know is this. This is the strong hand of God intervening in the church community and saying, enough! We don't play this game. This is not how it goes for God's people. So after they fell down and breathed their last, immediately some young men came in and hauled them out and buried them. And it's pretty drastic, don't you think? Like even in Jewish culture, they, didn't, they buried same day, but, but, but not like that. There was, there, there was a procession, there was mourning, there was some things to happen. It's just like, whoosh, drag them out, dig the hole, put them in. It's really a commentary of God living out what it says in Deuteronomy 17, 7, to purge the evil out of our midst. Let's get it out of here. Let's, let's bury it. Let's get it out of sight. Let's, let's finish this thing before it, it contaminates the whole crew. If you're like me, I'm reading this, I'm like, drastic. Is it because... Lying to the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin? 
Is that what it is? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit? That's not it, because we read in other parts of Scripture, clearly in other parts of Scripture, that that the, the unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 22 to 30, and Mark 12, uh, 22 to 32 tell us that, that the, the, the sin that God doesn't forgive is this, this utter rejection of, of Jesus Christ, the unbelief and utter rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And, the, and he's talking about the unpardonable sin of the Pharisees who had seen God do so many miracles, do so many great things, and yet, you know what they still said? They still said, he's of the devil, he's of Beelzebul. That's the unpardonable sin. This isn't even the unpardonable sin. So what's going on here? It's not that hard to figure out. You know what it is? It's simply God reminding his people as the early church is established, as the church is just getting going in its infancy. It's God reminding the people of, the, of his character and calling on our lives, which is to holiness. Reminder of God's character uh, and his calling to us in holiness. And, and I want you to know that there is a, an Old Testament passage that corresponds with this New Testament passage. Joshua chapter 7, remember when the people entered the promised land? Remember that? Almost the same thing played out with God's people in in Joshua chapter 7. Remember Achan? So they had this great victory. The first place they conquered was Jericho, and they marched around that place six times, seven times, right? And, And big trumpets, and the thing fell down, and we highlight that story, but what happens next? We forget, we forget often. God says when, when, when they took the, the city, he says, okay, everything's devoted to me, and so burn it all, keep no spoils from that city. Everything be done. That's mine, that's the, what I call it, devoted to me, be done with it. And so there was one guy in the Israelite uh, community that thought, well, you know what, there's some nice stuff here. And so he kept a coat for himself, a really nice coat. He kept some gold and some silver, he hid underneath his tent. Next battle that came, the Israelites were like, woohoo, we're on top of the world, nothing's gonna stop us. They go to battle, Ai got crushed. Remember? Like, what's going on? And, and God says, there's sin in the camp. Joshua hauls everybody out one by one. Like, okay, who's got it? Who's got it? Who's got it? Comes to Achan. Achan's like, it's me. Goes to the tent, unpacks all the stuff he'd kept. Remember how God dealt with Achan in the Old Testament? He, bring your stuff, bring your family, because his family's probably part of it too. You can't hide stuff under your tent, your family not know. Put them in the valley, they stoned them, and then put stones on top of them to build this altar reminder of like, uh, hey, we serve a holy God who calls us to holiness. So it's really interesting, it's really interesting that the start of the Old Testament, they get to the promised land, God reminds them of the same truth. Start of the New Testament church, as they get into, get into uh, the New Testament age, the church, God reminds them of the same truth. It's like, hey, let's start this thing properly, remembering that you worship a holy God, a righteous God, who calls you to be holy as I am holy. Somehow we have in our heads this idea that God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament is this angry, vengeful cop who's power-hungry, who's, who's, who's sitting around every corner just waiting to nail us for going one over the speeding limit, and he's going to give us as much as he can give us. And yet the God of the New Testament is this, this sort of fun-loving uncle who just wants us to be happy and, and takes us out to McDonald's and mini-golf every Friday night, and we can do whatever we want. Brothers and sisters, read the scriptures again. Read the scriptures again because the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. Same guy hasn't changed and he is a God who desires and demands holiness in his people. Yes, we get it. We're positionally holy in Jesus Christ but there's a lifetime of practically working this out as we aim to be sanctified and to love Jesus and be changed into his character. You know, God's number one desire for his people is to love him and be set apart for him. That's what holy means. Here's what God's teaching us. There's no place for sin in the family of God. This should be making some people uncomfortable today. It made me uncomfortable all week. So it should be making you uncomfortable today. There's no place for sin in the family of God. And get this, God will do whatever it takes. He'll do what needs to get to be done to root it out because it's so detrimental to your own soul and to the community of God. It 
Sin has the potential to totally, totally cause destruction to the people of God. And so God will do whatever it takes to root it out. Reminds me of a story that played out in our lives in the last number of years. Uh, my parents, when they moved to Quebec, um, lived in a church manse. It was this little house that the church owned that was probably 100 years old. And this church manse was filled with bats. And so every day we, we try and figure out how many bats do you think are in this house? Because if you walk through the house, you could even hear their heartbeats in the walls. That's how many there were. My wife and I stood outside one night and just at dusk and watched 250 come out of one of seven peaks in about five minutes. And if you know anything about bats, bat dung is not good. It's not healthy. It's got detrimental effects for elderly, for the young, and, and I'm sure for middle age too, but they're more focused on the elderly and the young, and even some people think it causes cancer. So my parents were always like, hey, church, maybe you should deal with these bats. We don't know how bad this place is. And the church was always like, oh, we don't have any money for that. You'll be fine. So my dad left that church, the new pastor came in, and the bat dung started actually seeping down the walls. Problem, right? Call someone to come in and clean it up. The problem was when they got in the attic, there was a foot and a half to two feet of bat dung throughout the whole attic. It's gross, eh? I slept there a few times. That's just nasty. You know what they ultimately determined, though? There's no point cleaning this thing up. The health hazards are just far too great. They brought in a bulldozer and they took it down. Couldn't see it. Surely it can be that bad for you. It's, it's in the attic. You're down below, right? Sometimes God's people get so full of sin in the attic, in the place you can't see, that God ultimately steps in and says, you know what, I think it's time to take this thing down so that there's no other health consequences for your own heart and for everybody else all around you. It's actually an act of grace, the grace of God. This is how seriously God takes sin. Do you take sin as seriously as God takes sin? All sin is a massive affront to God. It disregards his character. It's a diss to Jesus Christ who came to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. How serious is sin? God's son died for sin. That's pretty serious, don't you think? It makes a mockery of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to make us like Jesus and walk in his ways. All sin is deplorable in God's eyes and he will do what it takes to resolve this in the believer's life. He's done what it takes in Jesus Christ and he will continue to do what it takes to, to rid us of the sin in us. It's just a question of they weren't saved? Don't believe so because... An unsaved person is not lying to the Holy Spirit. This is, like, you know, this is a question. It's a question of discipline. It's a question of like, okay, how are we going to get this point across that sin is so serious to these people? I know what we'll do. We'll take this, these people and make them an example for everybody else. You know God loves you that much, right? That he will discipline you for your sin. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us that the time of judgment begins in the household of God. Well, judgment's for everybody else, so not, not no, actually the time of judgment begins right here for God's people. Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines those that he loves, and if you're a legitimate child of God, he is going to discipline. If you're illegitimate, he, he, he's not going to go there. If you're legitimate, he's going to discipline you. Why? Because he loves you. Why do I discipline my kids? I'm not going to discipline your kids. Why do I discipline my kids? Because I love them. You know how my kids really know that I'm their dad because I'm the one who's willing to step up and discipline them because I love them that much. And sometimes God's discipline goes to the far extreme. We heard this a few weeks ago with Brett's sermon in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, right? Remember communion? Finally, God's like, hey, you're making a joke of this communion thing? Like, enough, you're going to go to sleep. Not like sleep is in a tree behind the church, but like you're going to go to sleep. Saved? Yes. It's kind of like God saying, hey, you know what, son? You know what, son? You're messing up this classroom. Time to take you out of the classroom. God still does this today. Don't fool yourself. God still does this today. 
I think I've told you this before, I served on the church staff as an intern in Ohio with a music minister that was on his third wife. He married his second wife, but is having an affair in the church with another person. And someone told me about that. I went to him and said, like, is this true? Ha, don't worry, buddy. These are things too great for you. You're only young. You're just out of college. Really? That's the answer you get? Went to the pastor. I'm like, what's up with this? He's like, you know what? We'll deal with it. Got fired. Left his wife. Married this other woman. Ultimately, like three years later, I get a phone call from one of my friends who was good friends with, with this guy's brother. And he's like, you know, you never guess what happened to so-and-so. Like, he got this crazy, weird disease like a week ago and was in the hospital for three days and just died at like 43 years old. Like, ah. Uh. My mind's spinning with like 1 Corinthians 11 with passages like this. Like, like, like maybe God's finally just said, that, you know, you're going to disregard sin long enough? Enough. I know what you're thinking. You're like, what about Grace. He always tells us about grace. What about grace? What about grace? What about grace? It doesn't seem like there's any grace in this passage. Does there? Does there? And I said, you get a chance to get a word out of his mouth, and he's like, fell over. Ananias' name means, you know what it means? It's Hebrew for the Lord is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. So where's the grace? I believe Ananias probably had many opportunities to experience the grace of God. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you'll never be tempted beyond what you can bear, and God will always provide a way out. Here's how I think grace played out in this passage. I think God, all along with this whole plan that him and his wife were devising, God was like, hey, Ananias, bad plan. Holy Spirit, hey, Ananias, please don't do that. Ananias, the money's not worth it. Just, just do what you say you're going to do. And, and every time the Holy Spirit's nudging, here's probably what Ananias did. He's like, ah, I'm not going to listen to that. Ah, I'm not going to listen to that. Ah, I'm not going to listen to that. So where's the grace? And probably the grace happened all the way up to the point where Ananias is like, he took that step over the line and said, I'm just going to disregard the grace of God. I'm going to do my own thing. So when it came time for the confrontation, God probably already knew that he already had this in his head, that this is the way I'm going to lie about it. This is done. But with Sapphira, where's the grace in her life? Actually, there is grace in her life. Peter gives her an opportunity to change her mind, right? Is this really what went down? Moment of grace. Yes, it is. When it says that Sapphira was testing the spirit of the Lord, you know what she was doing? She was like a little kid going like, I know the boundaries, I know the boundaries, I know the boundaries, but, but if I go this far, will God do anything about it? Will I go this far, will God? She's testing the spirit of the Lord. If I go this far, will oh, maybe this. Enough with the this fars. Peter's like, why would you test the spirit of the Lord? I'm not sure how we've got here, but somehow... We've gotten this idea in the Christian church that grace means you can do whatever you want and God doesn't care. He loves you anyway. And he does love you anyway, but he cares about how you live your life. Just like, just like my kids, I love them deeply and I care about how they live their lives and they can, they can do a lot of things and it's not going to change my love for them, but I care deeply about how they live their lives. Randy Alcorn says this, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning, get this, it's not biblical grace. Any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable with sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. Grace is not a pass to disregard sin. I think you probably picked up on that already, haven't you? What a story. You're all sitting there like I was all week. Like, <laughs> Where does this leave us? It leaves us all in the same place. It's heart check time, isn't it? It leaves us all in the same place. It's heart check time. A couple questions to ask yourself as you think of the application of this. Am I living in hypocrisy? Just ask yourself that simple question. Am I living in hypocrisy? Don't ask your spouse. Don't ask your kids. Ask the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. 
Am I living in blatant disregard for God in an area of my life? This is your wake-up call. This is, a, this is God's grace to you. Stop messing around with sin. Get this. God will expose it, and he will deal with it as he sees best. This isn't a game we play. This isn't a Christian game we play. This is real life, real reality. This is a real, holy, and righteous God. God's grace to us today is telling us, hey, this isn't a yellow light to sin. This is a stop. This is a red light. Let God's spirit convict me and break me. We've heard already in Acts so often this whole idea that the the message of Peter was simply what? It was repent, right? Acts chapter 2 in his first sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent. Acts 3, verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's too soon, guys. That's way too soon. Still on point two. Don't want you to miss this. This is such an important part. Repentance. I want to say it again because I don't want you to miss this. We've seen it already in Acts. I've sort of, sort of said it but not really camped on it. But I want to camp on it today because this is, this is where it all comes to fruition. Repent. Acts 2.38. Repent. Acts 3.19. Repent therefore and turn again. In other words, it's not just a one-time thing. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the, pre- for the, from the presence of the Lord. I don't know how else to tell you this. I don't know how else to encourage you to this, but but I just want to take a moment and beg you to this. I want to beg you to this. Don't disregard your sin any longer. Don't, Don't treat it like it doesn't matter. It matters. And if you know that you're living in hypocrisy today, if you know deep down your heart and the Holy Spirit's even pointing you right now, you're like, you're like, that's me, he's talking about me, he's talking about me. This could happen to me. I beg of you, don't ignore the voice of the Lord today. Simply repent. That's what the, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus will forgive us of all of our sin when we come to him in repentance. We stop playing this silly charade and we stop running from God. We simply repent. This is where times of refreshing come into your soul. It's only through repentance that your relationship with God can be restored and be all that it can be. It's only through repentance you can have a renewed heart in holiness. It's only in repentance that you can have a relieved conscience. The guilt and the shame, they're gone. If you're a believer and you're living in sin, there is guilt there, there is shame. It's only in repentance that you can be done with that stuff and actually breathe again in your spirit. It's only in repentance that the real gospel influence in your life with others can really take shape. Am I living in hypocrisy? You can fool us all. You can fool me. You can fool everybody. But you can't fool God today. And God loves you too much to let you continue living a hypocritical lifestyle or a hypocritical inner lifestyle in your heart. Repent today. Don't go out of here and say, well, maybe one day I'll repent. Maybe I'll think about that. If God's stirring your heart today, repent today, right now. That times of refreshing may come that you might have a renewed relationship with the Lord like you haven't had in a long time. Second question to ask yourself is, am I pursuing holiness? Am I truly pursuing holiness? Or have I got into this mentality of as long as I don't sin, I'm okay, but am I truly pursuing holiness with the Lord? I love this saying, give Satan an inch and he will become ruler. Am I truly trying to root out the sin in my heart? Am I truly trying to, to, to give my all to Jesus Christ and be conformed to the image of his son? Oh, brothers and sisters, don't buy into this silly Christian culture that says this twisted grace that says do whatever you want and God doesn't care. That's so not biblical. God has a far better plan for you than that. God has a plan for you to pursue Christ-likeness in your mind and Christ-likeness in your emotions and Christ-likeness in your heart and to take stock of what you're actually living and being as you love Jesus Christ. Are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing holiness in things that you see? The things that you watch? The way you, where you let your eyes go? Are you pursuing holiness in, in the, the, the motivations of your heart? Are you pursuing holiness in your relationships? Are you pursuing Christ in, in what you desire the most? Are you pursuing Jesus Christ and the holiness that he longs for you to live in? It's only when we pursue holiness that we find the true power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Dabble in sin, you're not going to know the full power of the Holy Spirit. Look how, look at even before this passage, right, right with the end of, of chapter 4, verse 31, the Holy Spirit is moving in power. You know what happens right after this in verse 12 of chapter 5 we're getting to next week? It's again many signs and wonders being done. It's the Holy Spirit moving, Holy Spirit moving. What has to happen in between? Sin has to be rooted out before the Holy Spirit can move again in the lives of the believers. So God gives us this passage to ultimately drive us to a deeper reverence for him. It's point number three. You can write this. God's ultimate desire is to drive us to a deeper reverence for him. If you look at verse five and you look at verse 11, you can circle these two words, great fear. Great fear came upon all who heard it. When Ananias was carried out, great fear. When, when Sapphira was carried out, great fear came upon the whole church and even upon those who had, who had heard of these things happening. Why does God have examples like this in the Bible? Because he wants us to once again revere him and, and a healthy, holy fear of him. What's fear of the Lord? It's, it's a, both a reverent respect and an awe of God as well as a healthy dread of God's displeasure and discipline. It's a twofold thing. It's... it's it's like when I was a kid, I respected my dad a lot and I loved him. I didn't want to displease him, but I also knew the other side of my dad that, hey, if I crossed some lines, there was going to be some consequences to that because he loved me. And so, so I had this, this, this respect for him, but I also had this kind of proper, healthy, I know where the boundaries are. That's what God wants us to have in, in, in our lives for him. He wants us to revere him and respect him and treat him not like some sort of spiritual Santa Claus who sneaks into our house just to give me the things on my wish list, but as the triune God that has all, he doesn't, you don't have to give it to him, he has all authority and power and dominion in the universe. And what's my response to this God? My response to this God is, is not to bring him down to my level, not to try and bring myself up to his level, but to simply get down low before him and bow before him as my God and my king. To revere him and remember that he is on the throne. My job is to bow and worship. To remember that he calls the shots. My job is to submit. To remember that he is the king and we are the servants. And to live with the reverence and a respect and an awe of God for who he is. God is not like us. God is far above us. God's commands are not for us to decide, well, I like this one, not this one. They are given to us for our good and his glory. God reminds us of those things through Ananias and Sapphira's life. In a strange sort of way, I'm kind of thankful for Ananias and Sapphira, aren't you? Kind of weird, but it's true. I've asked myself as I read this this week, so what do you put on a gravestone for Ananias and Sapphira? What do you slap on their gravestone? Well done, though, good and faithful servant? Probably not. Some cute little angels with, like, ushered into the loving arms of God? They were, but in kind of a weird way. Here lies the best example that life could have ever given me. Or do you put something like this? Deuteronomy 13.4. Just a verse. Walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Like the moon revolves around the sun. You know what our deal as believers is as our lives revolve around Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. That we walk humbly before God, that we pursue his passions, that we pursue his character and his holiness in our lives. This is a stark warning for us as a church. It's a stark warning for you as a believer. You're not to leave here with like, hey, that was a good message. That's cool for somebody else. It's a message for me. It's a message for you. If you want to see the power of God alive in your life and in this church, these are passages that we have to take seriously before the Lord. Here's my prayer for us as a church. 
as I read this, as I study this, as I realize that there is a holy God who hates sins and calls us to the same holiness. God, fill us with a reverent fear of you this morning. Feeling a reverent fear of God all of a sudden today from the word of God? Father, bring renewal and repentance in this place today. God, revive us with a passion for personal holiness. And God, move us to a deeper worship of you. That his name would truly be honored and glorified in all of our lives. There's no other way to live the Christian life. This, this is the only way. There's no like, I'll be this type of Christian and not that one. There is one way to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly for his glory. Let me pray. God, we pray at the beginning of this that you'd speak to us. And oh Lord, I know you spoke to my heart all week long and continue to do so even right now as I preach this message to our people. God, would you speak so loud and clear this morning in this place that no one could simply leave unaffected or unchanged by the reality of your holy word and your holy character. Oh, Lord, would you make us a people who pursue holiness? Would you make us a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and whom this, make us a church that nothing hinders the movement of God in this place? Would you root out the sin in us, God? Would you replace it with righteousness? Would you replace it with a desire to love you and to follow you wholeheartedly no matter what the cost? you make us discontent with living a double life, Lord? Would you make us hate our sin as you hate it, oh God? And would you develop within us a gag reflux to sin the same way we have a gag reflux to some of the things that we, we hate to eat? Would you create in us, God, a, a, a love for the word of God, for the things of God, for the righteous qualities that you call us to have? God, I pray you'd be so gracious to us that you would not find sin in this camp, that you'd feel obligated out of grace to tear it down. But instead, oh God, I pray you'd be gracious enough to find hearts of repentance in this place, hearts that seek your face in this place, that we'd be a church that you'd, you have a, a desire to bless and to lift up and to use many people's lives to transform all of us to be like you. May your spirit fall even now, God, not just beginning of the service, not just the middle, but at the end. And may you do the deep work in us that I can't do, that we can't do, that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.